0: By popular demand, NetSuite has extended its one-of-a-kind flexible financing program for a few more weeks. Head to netsuite.com slash gps. netsuite.com slash
1: gps. This is GPS, the global public square. Welcome to all of you in the United States and around the world. I'm Bianca Lodriga filling in for Fareed Zakaria today, and we are coming live from New York. Today on the program, I have an interview with Iran's foreign minister, who warned this week that if the attacks in Gaza continue, America will not be spared. I asked him where Iran's threat stands now, how close the Middle East may be to a much wider war, and what Iran's role was in Hamas's October 7th attack. And how are the Israeli people feeling as the country launches its second stage of war? I'll ask top Israeli anchor Yonit Levy. Then for one brief shining moment, Sam bankman fried was a crypto mega billionaire and the subject of a ton of buzz, but then it all collapsed. This week he took the stand in his federal fraud trial. The great writer Michael Lewis was by Bankman's side to witness his rise and fall and tells Freed the fascinating tale. Yesterday, Israel's Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu called the war on Hamas his nation's second independence war and warned that it would be long. Meanwhile the president of the International Committee of the Red Cross has called the humanitarian situation in Gaza a, quote, catastrophic failing that the world must not tolerate. CNN Sarah Seidner joins me live now from Tel Aviv with the very latest. So Sarah, what more are you learning about this expanded operation into Gaza?
2: Look, we heard from the prime minister, as you mentioned there, and he really tried to frame this as like an existential threat uh, to the survival of Israel. Uh, And he said that the next phase of the war is happening. What you're seeing is uh, not a huge ground invasion, but a small one. You are seeing that soldiers are in uh, Gaza, Israeli soldiers in Gaza as we speak. We have also seen the volley of airstrikes that have been going on there in Gaza uh, with devastating effect. We have also seen plenty of rockets that have come over. They, they come over daily, really. Um, Tel Aviv is not used to getting this number of rockets uh, or rockets at all. It is it is more rare here than it is along the border in places like Ashkelon and Ashdod and Shterot. But now it has become a regular occurrence that rockets continue to fly over uh, Tel Aviv here. The thing that Israel has, of course, is the Iron Dome that knocks those out. Uh, But we have really, we've been seeing just an enormous amount of of firepower inside of Gaza. And on the perimeters, there is tank fire. Uh, We are hearing from our reporters there as well that there is small arms fire uh, that has been going off over the past 24 hours. Uh, And, of course, those airstrikes, which is causing certainly a devastation there uh, in Gaza and a lot of death, including a lot of civilians, men, women, and children and babies. Uh, but here in Israel, there is also a big call uh, by those who have hostages still in Gaza, they are demanding to, to have some answers, to know exactly whether or not uh, this new phase of the war is going to put their loved ones there in danger. They met with the Prime Minister and Defense Minister Yoav Gallant, uh, and you know really demanded that their hostages, that their family members, be put as a priority. Uh, and uh, they were promised that they were a priority to the Israeli government. But since then, you know, we have seen so many strikes. There's just a lot of fear on the part of those with family members that are in Gaza in those tunnels, that they just uh, will not be able to make it out alive if this continues the way it does before a negotiation uh, is able to get them out, Biana.
1: Yeah, we just heard Jake Sullivan tell our Jake Tapper that the release of those hostages remains a top priority for U.S. officials as well. Uh, Sarah, let me ask you about the situation in Gaza specifically. Do we know if any additional humanitarian aid has been able to get in?
2: They, it's just it's such a minuscule amount. I mean, normally you have somewhere near 100 trucks coming in each day. And that's on a, a regular day that is on uh, uh, before any war is going on. They've only been able to get uh, a few dozen trucks there over a week's time. And so you are really seeing this just enormous humanitarian catastrophe, not just from the munitions being used on Gaza by Israel, but also because of the blockade, also not being able to get in the aid. So there is not enough food. There is not enough water. Um, it, it is really a situation where the civilians are suffering greatly uh, over the and It gets worse by the day. And you've
1: been covering it all for us for the past few weeks. Sarah Seidner, thank you. Well, on Thursday night, U.S. officials announced that American F-16s had struck weapons and ammunition storage areas in Syria. These facilities, the government said, were used by Iran's Islamic Revolutionary Guard Corps and affiliated groups. Now, the strikes were a response to a series of attacks on U.S. forces in Iraq and Syria from Iran's proxies since the war began. Earlier that day, Iran's foreign minister, Hossein Amir Abdullahiam, seemed to threaten the U.S. in a speech at the U.N., saying that America, quote, wouldn't be spared from the fire if the war in Gaza continued. I sat down with him on Thursday afternoon to ask him about that threat, but I began the interview with what began this war in the first place, the October 7th Hamas attack. Mr. Foreign Minister, thank you for taking the time. Let me start by asking you, Did Iran play any role, direct or indirect, in the October 7th Hamas attack on Israel?
3: You know, what what happened on 7th of October in the occupied territories of Palestine, it was a decision that was made by the Palestinians alone. And since the country was occupied, they thought that it was a natural right to, to defend their own territories, to carry out the operation. That was a totally Palestinian operation and decision.
1: Well, the New York Times and the Wall Street Journal say their sources from both Hamas and the IRGC tell them that Iran was directly connected to the attack.
4: Um,
3: I think this is totally baseless claim and allegation. Naturally, we do support Palestine, we have always had political, media and international support for Palestine. We have never denied this. This is the truth, but in relation to this operation called the Al-Aqsa storm, and there was no connection to, between Iran and uh, this uh, Hamas operation, not my government, no part in my country, you know, what they did.
4: considering
3: the, the international law, they did it in, in, in defending the occupied territories and they want to retake their territories and to liberate. Palestine from occupation and to free it. it, We believe that according to the international law, they did it in defending themselves.
1: Mr. Foreign Minister, you know what happened in that attack. Babies, the elderly, women, children were murdered. They were tortured. That was part of the mission. How can you justify that as being legal? under international law. No one else has.
4: First of all,
3: uh, from uh, the 8th of October up to now, in 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 a vengeful operation, the Israeli regime is continuously, day and night, targeting non-military areas, both in Gaza and the West Bank, bombarding them, even using phosphorus bombs, several times. More than 7,000 women, children and civilians have been killed.
1: I do want to go back to the brutality in this attack perpetrated by Hamas, because it horrified the world. And yet your office, the day after, said this, quote, The resistance has so far achieved brilliant victories during this operation. And this is a bright spot in the history of the Palestinian people's struggle against the Zionists. You yourself called the attack a historic victory. How on earth can you call the butchering of innocent civilians a bright spot?
3: Let me ask you a question. Uh, has Israel occupied Palestine or the other way around? The Palestinians occupying Israel. Which one is the occupied? In response to occupation, 75 years of humiliation.
2: But
1: you know Israel has not been in Gaza for many years. Hamas has controlled Gaza.
4: Israel, <laughs> the in
3: a large number of territories belonging to Palestinians, Israel has been there for years. They're demolishing their houses of the Palestinians and they are expanding upon their settlements. They they, they have killed thousands of Palestinians, made them homeless. This is continuous genocide and the, the crime is going on. What happened was a natural response to about 75 years of crimes, genocide an occupation.
1: We could go back and talk about 75 years, but I'm talking to you specifically about this attack, which precipitated the war that we have now seen.
3: I'm asking you specifically what, for, for the prevalent and extensive attacks against Gaza and killing of 7,000 women and children. Why, why are you not seeing both sides, the occupying side, yeah, we, yes, uh, you know, uh, we don't approve of the killing of the civilians.
4: So you condemn
3: I have met with the leader of Hamas in Qatar. I asked him. He explained to me why why they did what, what they did. He said that we, we wanted to retake our occupied territories. He explained to me that in the past month, Netanyahu, was involved in very radical extremist actions again, and also desecrated the Al-Aqsa Mosque and, and even disrespected the Christians and also Jewish settlements in the West Bank. For 16 years, Gaza is a, sm- a small area, is under total human blockade. When, when, when you treat a nation like this, they, they believe it is the right to defend their motherland. You see, I would like to emphasize, we are opposed to the killing killing of the civilians. The political leader of Hamas told me that we stand ready to, to, to battle the, the military Israelis for a long time, but, but, the, but the civilians should be left out.
1: Next on GPS, I asked the Iranian foreign minister about his perceived threat to the United States, where he said at the U.N. that America wouldn't be spared if the war continues. We'll be back in a moment. This podcast is supported by
0: NetSuite. Quick math. The less your business spends on operations, on multiple systems, on delivering your product or service, the more margin you have and the more money you keep. With NetSuite, you reduce IT costs because NetSuite lives in the cloud with no hardware required, accessed from anywhere. You cut the cost of maintaining multiple systems because you've got one unified business management suite. Over 37,000 companies have already made the move, so do the math. See how you'll profit from NetSuite. By popular demand, NetSuite has extended its one-of-a-kind flexible financing program for a few more weeks. Head to NetSuite.com GPS. NetSuite.com GPS.
1: As the war rages on in Gaza, U.S. officials are now warning of a growing likelihood of escalation in the wider region. Israel is trading heavy fire with Hezbollah militants on its Lebanese border. And American forces are now responding to drone attacks from militant groups in Iraq and Syria. These groups are part of what Iran calls the axis of resistance. I asked Iran's Foreign Minister Amir Abdullahian about his country's role in the Middle East and the prospects of a larger war. I want to talk about your time in New York because you spoke at the UN and I want to quote what you said for our viewers. You said, "I say frankly to the American statesman, we do not welcome expansion of the war in the region, but I warn, if genocide in Gaza continues, they will not be spared from this fire." Is that a threat? Is Iran prepared really to go to war against the United States?
4: Uh, We don't
3: want this war to spread out.
4: But with all
1: due respect, your actions don't seem to match your words. You say that you are playing a constructive role in helping peace and security. But according to the Pentagon, groups affiliated with Iran have targeted U.S. forces or bases in the region at least 15 times now. Since October 17th, injuring at least 20 U.S. military personnel, a U.S. carrier strike group, shot down 15 drones, four cruise missiles fired by Iran-backed Houthi militants in Yemen that was aimed towards Israel. President Biden said this
4: yesterday. He said... Any
3: attack that is carried out in the region, and if the U.S. interests are targeted by any group, you know, linking into the Senate Republic of Iran without uh, offering any, any piece of proof is totally wrong. You see, two weeks ago I was in Iraq, also in Syria and Lebanon. I could see up close and personal that the people of the region they they are very sensitive about the developments in the in the Palestine. They were angry. They are not receiving orders from us. They they act according to their own interest. And Also, what happened, what was carried out by Hamas? It was totally Palestinian. They decided to take responsibility for that. You
1: keep saying that, and yet you continue to weigh in on this issue. And that's what I don't understand. Iran wasn't attacked. Iran wasn't a party to this current crisis. So why are you involved?
4: We are not involved.
3: Why is the U.S. so involved? The U.S. is
1: protecting an ally that was attacked and provoked.
4: We are living
3: there, but the U.S. is not. From thousands of kilometers, it is away. They are interfering in all aspects of our region. You should ask the U.S. government. What what are you doing in Iraq? Has the Syrian government invited you to have your military bases there? Ask them what are you doing uh, uh, behind Netanyahu in a war that in which 7,000 uh, Palestinian women and children have been killed? We, we we yeah, we do care about the national security in our region. But there are groups in the region. And they do things, and they're responsible for their actions.
1: Your regional neighbors have moved on. The U.S. has brokered normalization between Israel and multiple Arab nations at this point, Muslim countries. The Biden White House is in the process of brokering a normalization between Israel and Saudi Arabia when the Hamas attack took place. Why does the prospect of that normalization frighten Iran so much?
4: You see,
3: those countries that have normalized ties with the Israeli regime, what they did was something perfunctory, not substantive. On the 7th of October, in the afternoon,
4: the countries
3: in which Israel has embassies you see, uh, how, what happened to their embassies uh, by the people in those countries. You know, it's just a source of evil. Wherever they're, they're, you see Israel, it is just a source of insecurity. They have assassinated our nuclear scientists in our streets. They, they don't care about the security of the region. They just want to foment insecurity. Because Israel exists and its longevity is tied to insecurity. Today, if the war in Gaza is ended, there's no doubt that in less than 24 hours, his government will fall, the Netanyahu's government.
1: That's what happens in a democracy. Up next on GPS, how the war is playing out among the Israeli public. I'll speak to one of the country's most prominent TV anchors, Yonit Levy. That's next. I wanted to get a sense of the sentiment on the ground in Israel just three weeks and a day after the Hamas attack and very early in this second stage of war, which Netanyahu promised would be long and difficult. So I asked Yonit Levy to join me. She is one of Israel's most recognizable people, a top anchor who joins us from her news channel, N12. Yonit, thank you so much for taking the time and your busy schedule to join us today. As we noted, we are now two days into what Prime Minister Netanyahu described as the next phase of this operation. He says that he had the full backing of the government going into this stage. How are the Israeli people feeling about it now?
6: Well, I mean, Biana, as you mentioned, um, it's been uh, three weeks and a day. The uh, ground incursion, the IDF's ground incursion into Gaza uh, has uh, started, and this is a very complicated Uh, thing to achieve. First, because there are 230 hostages, Israeli hostages, held by Hamas in Gaza. The Red Cross hasn't seen them. Their families don't know their condition. So the Israeli government wants and thinks that this is a tactic to to pressure uh, Hamas into somehow uh, a deal to release these hostages. And of course, the Bigger uh, goal, or the biggest goal by the Israeli government set, is to topple Hamas and to uh, dismantle its abilities to do this again. I think it's it's important to to say Israelis are still very much in this they are reeling from uh... the worst terror attack that they have uh... ever suffered every day more and more information uh... is coming out uh... you know i've just spoken to sources telling me that there are still uh... a hundred uh... israeli bodies that haven't been identified just so you let that sink in for a minute on what that means what has been done to these people uh... before death or after i mean this is where we are we are the whole public is, is, you know, watching this very, very closely, concerned about the hostages and also uh, about what the next steps of these, this war will look like.
1: And it comes as there's continued criticism of Prime Minister Netanyahu, not just in how he's handling the aftermath of the October 7th attack, not to mention that he's uh, taken some heat for, for blaming his intel officials, which he's then had to retract and apologize for in the last few hours. But there is uh, frustration in how he's handling the hostage situation as well. So given all of that, is there faith that his government can orchestrate this next phase of the operation in the weeks and months ahead successfully?
6: Well, look, I mean, ideally this situation would be where everyone um, would work together uh, and there would be solidarity and unity among everyone. I think we've seen that, uh, particularly in Israeli society over the past three weeks. We need to mention that this, of course, uh, this war that has been forced upon us happened uh, when Israeli society was already uh, very divided over the judicial overhaul, the protests. We've seen this over the last couple of months. So on the one hand, you have uh, the people reminding uh, Netanyahu that he was warned by his uh, security officials, by the defense establishment, that our enemies might see this as a moment to strike Israel because what they perceive as weakness. He, on the other hand, and his supporters, uh, by the way, in a, in a tweet he has uh, since then retracted, say, I did not have a specific alert to what Hamas intended to do on October 7th. All this, Biana, just a prelude to what we will see when this war uh, is over. Uh, the arguments and the questions, who knew what, what kind of policy vis-à-vis Hamas uh, was, uh, uh, was the, the prominent policy by the government, but again, I think that many in Israel kind of feel that this is the moment to try, if, this, if we're able to do that, try and come together, because the external threat is, is bigger than, than anything else that is, that is happening right now.
1: You know, Yonit, in the hours and days following the horrific October 7th attack, I know that Israelis were very moved by the compassion and support uh, that was provided by the U.S. President, President Biden. He, he made a trip to the region as well and to uh, meet with leadership there. And I know his popularity soared. I'm just wondering if there's concern now, given the humanitarian crisis that's unfolding in Gaza and the continued pressure from other countries for a ceasefire or a halt in operations, if there is a concern that perhaps some of that, what appeared to be unconditional support from the US may fade at some point?
6: Well, first of all, I must tell you that, I mean, the support, I think no one is more highly supported as a world leader, um, more than uh, President Biden, who came here and showed not only all the empathy, but all of the support that the United States could muster. And and Israel felt like he got us. He understood how. Uh, devastating this uh, this massacre was, and how uh, Israelis uh, feel. It's not only, by the way, that the support of aircraft carriers or anything like that. There are military experts and generals helping Israel with the guidance of how do you fight this kind of war against terror in a densely populated area. There are many uh, experienced uh, American generals on you know Fallujah or Mosul or places like that. So I think that. There, is, there, there might be some sort of difference between how patient the uh, Biden administration is and how patient the rest of the world uh, is to uh, what we are seeing uh, in Gaza. I think that what Israelis feel, and from the Israeli point of view, again, um, the world has moved on quite quickly from showing very, very brief empathy to what we uh, are still going through. To, in many cases, even blaming Israel for uh, what uh, has happened, and and I think that many Israelis uh, feel like their case isn't uh, uh, clear enough. Maybe hasn't been clear enough uh, for years. But how do you? Wage this war against a terror organization that's so cynical that it starts uh, by murdering your own children and then hides under uh, their population, uh, not at all caring if if they are hurt. So it's a very difficult thing uh, to maneuver. And I think that Israelis, uh, on the one hand, do feel like the uh, stopwatch has begun to uh, run its course, the, Israel always has a very short window, uh, but are also kind of angered by the fact that there is a stopwatch to begin with, because they feel like they have been through something that should never happen again. And of course, anyone who knows anything about Jewish history knows that those words never again have are imbued with, with a lot of meaning and tragedy. Well, Yonit Levy, you know, sometimes we
1: forget that journalists are humans as well, and you have been working 24-7 over the past three weeks. So uh, I want to thank you for all of your hard work. I hope you're taking care of yourself as well. I've been following you and your coverage, and it's been phenomenal throughout all of this. Thank you so much for your insight and for joining us today.
6: Thank you, Viana.
1: Well, up next on GPS, Fareed will be back. He has a fascinating interview with the author, Michael Lewis. Lewis has a new book out about Sam Bankman-Fareed, the once crypto billionaire who took the stand in his own defense in a federal fraud trial. We'll be back in just a moment.
2: I'm Ina Garten. Welcome to Be My Guest, the podcast. One of the best gifts you can give friends is spending time together. But what's even better than that? Cooking with them.
1: On Be My Guest, the podcast, new friends and old stop by my barn for some conversation and great cooking. We talk about food, life, and everything in between. Listen to Be My Guest, the podcast with me, Ina Garten, and join us wherever you get your podcasts. This week, Sam Bankman-Fried took the stand at his criminal trial in Lower Manhattan. The Department of Justice accuses him of orchestrating one of the biggest financial frauds in recent American history. The 31-year-old founder of the cryptocurrency exchange FTX has pleaded not guilty to seven charges. So what should we make of Bankman-Fried's precipitous rise and dramatic fall from Wall Street trader to billionaire entrepreneur to bankrupt and disgraced CEO? Fareed interviewed Michael Lewis, the author of the new book on the Crypto Titan, Going Infinite, The Rise and Fall of a New Tycoon.
5: Michael, welcome back to the show. Pleasure to be here, Fareed. Let me ask you something to begin with. Um, After doing all this, did you figure out what is cryptocurrency and
7: (laughs) and why does it exist? (laughs) Well, so so this is a very good question. To start with, what's curious about the story is you don't really need to know. And he didn't need to know. Like he he saw it. it, it, Cryptocurrency is in the eye of the beholder. And he almost says that in that that Bloomberg interview. Yes. And what he sees when he first walks in is an inefficient market. And it almost doesn't matter if it's cryptocurrency or tulip bulbs. There's a, it's priced one, one way, one place, and one way, another place, and you can just arbitrage it. He didn't care about it. But, so to answer your question, I mean, I had, before I started this book, I used to kind of kick around crypto and think, is there a story here? And it always struck me, two things always struck me. One, it always felt like a, a solution in search of a problem. Exactly, that's like, always like been the, my thought. The, the yeah. first response, the first pitch it was, it was going to replace the dollar. And it is not going to replace the dollar. It's not, going to, it's not a better means of exchange. Second pitch was it was like um, an uncorrelated asset. It didn't move around with everything else. But it, unfortunately, it moves around right. with everything right. else. And a year and a half ago, the market for cryptocurrency in the world, the, the market value of crypto was $3 trillion. And so for me, if you ask me, like, what's interesting to you about crypto? What drew you in to write about it? It was the social consequences of that. It was not the crypto itself. It was what happens when you... Out of nowhere create three trillion dollars of wealth and distribute it unequally and and some people have all of a sudden appear out of nowhere and have huge sums of money
5: and so let's get to sam bank matri do you think his interest was fundamentally the same as yours that oh my god there's this exploding market what's going on because a lot of the other guys i mean certainly Steve Jobs and Bill Gates they're fundamentally interested in the technology right. it seems to me Sam Brackman free was fundamentally interested was, in the money and
7: oh he was fundamentally inter- and fundamentally not interested in the technology his interest is the interest of a wall street trader he's working at jane street who is Uh, the high-frequency trading firm that is setting prices in markets for assets. And he is introducing radical efficiency into, say, the market for stocks. And in these trades he's doing, it's pennies that they're making on the trades. The margins are, you know, fractions of a percent. And he looks at this other market that is all of a sudden a $3 trillion market, and you can buy a Bitcoin for $800 in the United States and sell it for $1,000 in Japan at the same time risklessly. This, you don't see this in ordinary financial markets. So his interest was that, I'm gonna port Jane Street thinking and high-frequency trading thinking into crypto and be the first to do it, and that was it. The technology didn't interest him at all.
5: What do you think fundamentally explains his success? Because a lot of the people you've written about, they've succeeded and you've often been able to figure out kind of what was the genius behind it. Right. What's the genius here?
7: It was partly the brazenness of being willing to jump into a market that was shady, rickety, unpredictable, and apply these tools. I think it's a couple of things. One, he built his business on an oil field. I mean, when you, he, essentially, FTX was the casino. And the way it made money was it just took a little slice out of every transaction. And in a booming market, the transactions are booming. And so the slices, the, the, the sum of those slices gets to be a pretty right. big number. Right. I mean, a year after he starts it, he's generating a billion dollars in revenues a year and $400 million in profits. And, but the question is, like, why people came to his exchange. And he had the- Because there were others. There were, I mean, dozens yeah. of others. Yeah. His was the first that was really designed for the institutional trader, for the Jane Streets and jump trading and even Goldman Sachses of the world. They're used to trading on professional exchanges with professional technology. And he had a sense of what that was because he'd come out of that world. And he's the first to build an exchange that actually suited them. And so they, come, they follow him into the market and they want places to trade, and this place looks relatively attractive. And there are technical things about the exchange, but it was an, in, it was an insight that these people who I know from Wall Street are coming, and I'm gonna build the casino that they wanna be in.
5: It's such a complicated story, but at the heart of it, it seemed to me, that the, what he did wrong, mm-hmm. what, what the government alleges he did wrong, seems pretty simple. In finance, it's, it, it was kind of a sacred rule that if you have customers' money, you can use it only for very specified purposes and ones that the customer understands yes and he took that money 9 billion dollars of it more. And, and moved it moved more. it right yep. so at the heart is this a very simple story of massive misuse of customer of third party funds as they call it?
7: it it's easily muddied up and made more complicated than that because of how and the how and the why of it but the what of it, everybody agrees. I mean, he, even his lawyers aren't disputing this, that crypto was unusual in that, unlike say on a stock exchange, crypto actually crypto exchanges served as the custodians. Right. So if you own crypto at FTX, you kept your, your money at FTX as if it were a bank. And they were meant to keep your crypto in cold storage, like it was just supposed to be there. And customers would have thought that was true. And what was true instead was that money was largely inside of Sam bankman frieds private hedge fund, Alameda Research. So everybody agrees with that. Where it gets complicated is the how and the why and the intent. And this is where it gets a little messy. The bulk of the money, gets there, how it gets there, is in the beginning, banks wouldn't open accounts for FTX, not because FTX was an illegal thing, but because they just didn't want to be associated with crypto. They had opened accounts for Alameda Research because Alameda Research is sort of like tricked them into thinking this wasn't crypto. And so in order to get your fiat currency, your dollars and your yen and your euros onto FTX, you had to send it to an account in Alameda Research. And it just stayed there. They, it, it, even after later on FTX gets bank accounts, it's pulled there and, is not, and never gets moved. What I found just from the point of view of storytelling is that if you took if you, if you looked at this thing from not just Sam's point of view, but point of view of the people who work for him, point of view of the people outside the firm, that you, you might come out on different, with different answers. That like, a, different readers might conclude different things about the intentions of Sam Bankman-Fried. I think some of the readers would lynch him, but I think the others would think, this guy is just weird enough so that this was maybe more complicated than just pure theft.
5: Stay with us for a moment. When we come back, I'm going to ask a question that many reviewers have asked. Does Michael Lewis let Sam Bankman freed off too easily in this book? And we are back with Michael Lewis, the author of the new book, Going Infinite. So Michael, you've read the reviews, you've heard people say, lots of people think you're very soft on this guy. He's a crookster, he's a fraud, he ran a Ponzi scheme. Uh, government claims is the biggest, one of the biggest frauds in history. You, even in the way you've been responding, you're, you're quite sympathetic
7: to his point of view. I don't, I don't think that's exactly, if you read the book, the book, so the book, is, the, the book is told in a, there's a structure to this thing, it's not me. I'm using other people to tell this story. What I don't do, and this is, I mean, this is intentional, is I just don't, I don't inject my own judgment. I just felt like I'm writing a story for kind of a juror to read. And, and I'm gonna, i mean, but I have a, it wasn't my job to like pile on with the moral outrage. It was my job to report what I saw. Well, tell a but all your books,
5: they report, but they have a, I mean, the, the Times review, for example, said, Michael Lewis knows how to tell happy stories. He doesn't know how to tell tragedies and this is a story
7: of fraud and you know pe- ripping people off and and it's a- it's 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 so much more than that though if you told it as just that you're missing a lot of the fun of the story and the interest of the story and curiosity of the story so one of the benefits i had like my privileged position was i was there before it all went bad i was there for a year before it all went bad trying to figure out what this story was Hadn't written a word, but was thinking, just thinking through what this was. So I I could see the rise as well as the fall. And right from the beginning, I didn't think of it, certainly didn't think of this as a Sam Bankman Fried as a hero story. That was never the thing I was thinking. What I was thinking right from the start, the day I meet Sam Bankman Fried and the day he starts telling me the story about how. 18 months ago, he had zero dollars, and now he has $22 billion and and he's kind of bemused by it. And the world is organizing itself around this pile of money. I thought of this as social satire. I thought he's walking social satire, that he is lighting up parts of the world for us to understand because of his peculiar position in the world and his peculiar relationship to the world. Do you like him as a person? Oh yeah, I liked him when I met him and I I like him now. But I can tell you that when it all fell apart, it wasn't that shocking to me because i had there is a there's a foreshadowing of what's going to happen in this company in 2018 when he opens his 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 hedge fund it all falls apart half the people half the people he's working with think he's a crook or so so radically catastrophically sloppy and careless that he might as well be a crook and they quit and the money and money is lost and nobody knows where it is they wind up finding it But he was, this is all part of this character's, like, as a crime, this crime doesn't make a whole lot of sense in that his wealth and the wealth of all the people who worked at this place was tied up in this actually successful business called FTX. There was this cancer on the side of this business, the legacy business, this hedge fund, which was wholly unnecessary to the main business. Any sane person would have just shut down the hedge fund the minute this thing went boom. And so there's an insanity to this. It's not like, oh, this is Bernie Madoff. He had to do this because it was just a necessary Ponzi scheme. Um, so it was. No, he was making half a billion dollars legally. That is the, it's to, crazy. You know, it's a crazy. No, you know, yeah. yeah. Forbes magazine when they decide he's worth twenty-two and a half billion dollars, they're only valuing this business. This actually a successful business. And the character I had come to know by the t- when it all implodes is a character, he's a really curious character and, that, and, and a very much a creature of modern Wall Street. Um, he thrives in a state of semi-chaos. Like it, anything stable, like he would be a horrible accountant. Anything stable, careful, calculated, predictable, he's, he's, he can't function. A total chaos isn't good because he does have this aptitude for quickly sussing out situations and adapting to change. So figuring out that this is where he excels in these kind of like board game-like situations, he turns everything around him into this, so, because that's where he's relatively strong. And this was a version of this. He made, he made it all more complicated than it needed to be. Do, if you ask me another question, do I think he's going to jail? Yes, I think he's going to jail. I think it's highly unlikely he doesn't go to jail. I just think the circumstances are just, it's a shame to ignore how interesting the circumstances are. Michael Lewis, always a pleasure. My pleasure. Thanks to Bianca Golodriga,
5: and thanks to all of you for being part of my program this week. I will see you next week. I'm Dr. Sanjay Gupta, host of the Chasing Life podcast. In honor of our 10th season, we want to hear from you.